The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Addressing the Underlying Inflammation of Non-Cystic Fibrosis Bronchiectasis, Exploring Novel Treatments to Change Disease Course for Patients and Improve Quality of Life. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash htx860. Downloadable practice aids are also available. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. My name is Cedric Jamie Rutland, and I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician in Southern California. I practice at West Coast Lung or Rutland Medical Group in Newport Beach, California. Welcome to this educational activity on addressing the underlying inflammation of non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis, exploring novel treatments to change disease course for patients and improve quality of life. We're going to define the burden of non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis, talk about unmet treatment needs, and current management. So as with everything, we always have to start with what exactly is non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis? Well, when you think about bronchiectasis, really what it means is actually a dilation of the bronchial. The lung is organized into pipes that lead to balloons that are stacked on top of one another. These pipes carry air into the balloons, right? And we all understand gas exchange. But what we're talking about is abnormal, usually permanent dilation of the bronchioles, right? These are the pipes that are carrying air into the lung. As a result of this dilation or as a result of inflammation secondary to the process of bronchiectasis in general, you're going to get impaired mucociliary clearance, which is also going to lead to retention of secretions. And because of these retention of secretions and your airway epithelium not functioning as well in the environment, not working as well, you're going to get recurrent infections, worsening inflammation, and this all leads to further airway damage. That is bronchiectasis. But the way that we actually diagnose it is really by looking at imaging, looking at CT scans, looking at chest x-rays, and seeing bronchiectasis. We know that the symptoms of bronchiectasis are going to be anything from cough, sputum production, fatigue, dyspnea, and then you can have some other symptoms which are really secondary to the presence of this inflammatory process, like hemoptysis, pleuritic chest pains, and weight loss. When you look at bronchiectasis in general, especially in the United States, you know, it's on the rise. The estimated total patient population in the United States right now is about 340,000 patients, probably a little bit more. Most of these patients are over the age of 65. In fact, 260,000 of those 340,000 are over the age of 65. When you look at the prevalence, the prevalence is increasing. And the question is, why is it increasing? You know, does it have to do with us recognizing the illness now, being able to define it and at least offer some form of therapy and guidance? It's probably that. Again, there's a lot more individuals that are getting CT scans these days, which is probably the most sensitive test in regards to looking for bronchiectasis. You can tell that these bronchioles are dilated on CT scan a lot easier than you can on a chest x-ray. And so I think that that's part of it, but who really knows? But the prevalence is increasing, and so we really have to look forward and think about how we're going to manage this illness moving forward in the evolution of being a human being in general. The radiographic diagnosis is really greater than the pathologic diagnosis because that's how we diagnose it, right? You can see on CT that that bronchial to pulmonary artery ratio is going to be greater than about one, right? One to one and a half. Normally, the pulmonary artery is bigger than the bronchial by about 30%. But in bronchiectasis, the bronchial is bigger than the pulmonary artery. And again, like I mentioned, chest CT is the most sensitive, especially when compared to chest x-ray. When you look at bronchiectasis in general, 
Again, this is a physical finding, and I always tell my students and my colleagues, it's a physical finding. The bronchial's bigger than the pulmonary artery. Just because you've diagnosed it, it doesn't mean that you're finished. You're going to have to identify the underlying cause. And it's idiopathic, meaning we don't know the cause in up to 50% of the cases, but overall, there's lots of things that can cause bronchiectasis, right? It can be secondary to autoimmune diseases. It can be secondary to immunodeficiencies, right? If you don't have the ability to clear infection, it sticks around longer. Because the infection's there longer, you get a lot more inflammation. That inflammation tends to not only destroy the bacteria that's present, but also can destroy the airway, especially if it's persistent, right? These patients are going to get bronchial wall thickening. They're going to get mucus plugging. And all of that can lead to airway destruction or basically is airway destruction. Again, the way that we diagnose this, and if you have that diagnostic suspicion of bronchiectasis, you want to get sputum cultures. We already talked about getting imaging. Spirometry, looking at the patient's ability to breathe air out is important. And then you may want to do what's called a bronchoscopy, where we take a little video scope and we look inside the lung. The reason is you want to identify if there's any organisms that are contributing. And if patients continue to produce mucus, right, and they continue to be infected, you want to be able to treat those organisms. So I always perform bronchoscopy in my patients, especially severe patients, because I want to know what organism is causing this infection. You're going to get a sweat chloride test, right? You want to rule out cystic fibrosis. You also are going to want to get alpha-1 antitrypsin levels, probably some immune globulins. You want to look for common variable immune deficiency. Remember, that's an IgG that's low. IgG is the most abundant antibody floating around in our bloodstream, right? So you're going to check IgG, IgA, IgM, and IgE. You also you also might get a nasal nitric oxide as well as autoimmune testing, looking for both aspergillus allergy, right, by checking that aspergillus IgE, but also looking for autoimmune diseases and rheumatologic conditions, right? You're going to look for connective tissue diseases. You're going to look for vasculitis. You're going to look for rheumatoid arthritis. You're going to look for scleroderma lung or Sjogren's syndrome. You want to look for these things and identify if autoimmune disease is contributing to this airway destruction. Again, You want to identify the underlying cause because treatment's different, right? If you have an allergic lung disorder like allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, you're going to treat that a lot differently than you're going to treat rheumatoid arthritis, which you're going to co-manage probably along with the rheumatologist. If it is idiopathic and you truly don't have a cause, then what you want to do is you want to treat some of the symptoms, right? You want to reduce mucus viscosity and volume. You want to reduce that cough, improve the lung function, reduce exacerbations. And you just generally want your patients to feel better. So you want to improve that quality of life. When you look at the European Respiratory Society current guidelines in bronchiectasis management for adults, again, we're going to diagnose it. We're going to potentially treat a cause. You want to look at lung function. You want to understand the microbiology, understand what organisms are growing in that airway, right? Is it atypical mycobacterium? Is it a non-tuberculosis mycobacterium? Is it haemophilus, pseudomonas, streptococcus? These are common organisms that can infect the airway. You want to treat that cause. You want to improve the airway clearance and control that infection. Because if you do that, you're going to be able to control lung function and control the complications, right? So you're going to use multiple different treatment modalities to treat these individuals. You're going to use physiotherapy. You're going to clear that airway with certain valves. You're going to be able to use certain antibiotics to clear those organisms, right? 
patients might have very severe lung disease that leads to significant inflammation and complete lung destruction. They might need a lung transplant. You're going to have to be able to identify that. You're going to be able to use anti-inflammatories. You're going to want to be able to educate your patients on non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis so they can understand their own management plans, right? Self-management plans. You want to reduce that exacerbation. You want to reduce that hospitalization, that mortality, and increase their overall quality of life. When you look at airway clearance strategies, what we're really talking about here is inhaled saline, right? You want to use hypertonic saline to help pull those secretions out. You want to use chest physiotherapy. You might use an oscillatory positive pressure device. You might use something like that. You also might use a high-frequency chest wall oscillation vest, right? You put the vest on. Really what you're trying to do is beat up the chest to get that mucus out of there. You don't want that thick mucus just sitting there because bacteria love it. They can sit there, they can grow, they love the mucus, and that leads to more airway destruction. These are problems that we want to be able to handle. When you look at the European Multicenter Bronchiectasis Audit and Research Collaboration, in addition to the Bronchiectasis Research Registry, again, these are both big registries where we look at a lot of different bronchiectasis patients in Europe and the United States and really understand what's going on, which organisms are causing infection most commonly, right? And what we looked at in their definition of exacerbation, we noticed that they had to have at least three of the following. They had to have a cough, increase in their cough or sputum volume, increase in their sputum purulence, increase in their breathlessness, fatigue, or hemoptysis, right? So you had to have at least three of those. You had to have symptoms that were present for at least two days, 48 hours. And you also had to have a physician be involved to identify if we wanted to determine the change in bronchiectasis treatment. Are they already on treatment? Do we need to upgrade that treatment? Are they not on treatment at all? And we need to actually initiate treatment. Because the exacerbation that leads to the deterioration in symptoms, that's what drives morbidity and mortality. That's what drives airway inflammation. These things are important to be able to treat. When you look at exacerbation history in general, it's a strong predictor of future outcomes, right? So the more exacerbations you have, the more likely you're going to be in the hospital, and it actually reduces your survival over time. In other words, if you have three or more exacerbations, your survival is going down, and you can see that very clearly here in this graph. The patients that continue to have less exacerbations continue to do better overall, right? Their survival is much greater. So we want to prevent exacerbations. It's almost like any other lung disease, right? Microbiology of bronchiectasis is extremely important. When you look at the EMBARC, remember the European Multicenter Bronchiectasis Audit and Research Collaboration, the common organisms that are identified in bronchiectatic patients are Haemophilus influenza, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Meroxilla cateralis, right, gram-negative organisms. You're also going to see some strep and staph. You may also see aspergillus and non-tuberculosis mycobacterium, right? In the United States, you're going to see very similar organisms. You're going to see those gram-negative rods like Haemophilus and Pseudomonas. You're going to see it looks like a lot more NTM disease, a lot more non-tuberculosis mycobacterium in the United States population. So when you see that bronchiectasis, when you see that mucus on CASCAN, you really need to perform a bronchoscopy or get a good airway sample to identify what kind of organisms are within that bath, right? Within that lung bath, as I like to call it. When you look at 
impact of airway infection, again, you can see that if you have pseudomonas, you're more likely to be hospitalized, right? If you have these gram negatives, you're probably more likely to be hospitalized of gram negative like pseudomonas, right? The gram positives are a little bit probably easier to treat overall. But again, look at that percent mortality over four years with pseudomonas. If you have pseudomonas, that mortality goes up. So it's really important to identify pseudomonas and get pseudomonas treated and cleared, right, to help prevent some of this prognostic impact. The way that I think about this infection, right, is when you have chronic infection with pseudomonas, you're going to get impaired mucociliary clearance. Overall, when I think of these chronic infections, when I think of what's going on in the airway, it's this circular process, right? We know that the neutrophil is heavily involved. The neutrophil is the most common white blood cell that's present in this airway. You get this neutrophilic inflammation, you get airway destruction, you get abnormal mucus, you get bacterial colonization. That's what happens. And so when you get Pseudomonas aeruginosa, it also leads to impaired mucociliary clearance and it becomes a problem as the Pseudomonas aeruginosa continues on in the airway, especially if we don't treat it. So when we do see it, according to the European Respiratory Society, you want to consider, first of all, the sensitivities of pseudomonas. You want to make sure that you have enough of the mucus collected, enough of it isolated to be able to identify if it has certain resistance. You want to give oral fluoroquinolones or IV antibiotics, or you want to use IV antibiotics or oral fluoroquinolones with inhaled antibiotics like colistin. You want to treat them for at least 14 days. And again, if they continue to culture out pseudomonas, you're going to have to get more aggressive with therapy, right? And so sometimes you might treat for two weeks, but then again, you might continue to use an inhaled tobramycin, genomycin, or colistin for three months, right? Or even longer in certain cases, depending on how severe your patient is. But I think it's really important to identify pseudomonas aeruginosa. That's the organism you want to know if it's present because it has prognostic implications. When you look at long-term antibiotic treatment for bronchiectasis, you're going to look at acute exacerbations of bronchiectasis. You're going to treat them for at least 14 days of antibiotics in normal cases. Long-term antibiotic therapy should be offered to the patient if they're having a lot of exacerbations, right? These are patients with at least three exacerbations a year. Then you're going to think about long-term macrolide therapy. You're going to think about long-term inhaled therapies, right, for pseudomonas, or you want to use combined oral and inhaled therapies. I think the whole point is, once the neutrophil is present in the airway, it's actually the products of the neutrophil that leads to some of this airway destruction. And when you think about the products of the neutrophil, we're talking the neutrophil elastase, we're talking the myeloperoxidase, the matrix metalloproteinases, the cathipsins as well. So when we look at airway clearance, when we look at people who have a lot of exacerbations, right, people who have greater than three exacerbations a year, and I'm not too big on waiting for people to have three exacerbations a year, but if they do, these people are severe. So we got to optimize their airway clearance. And so what we need to do is we're going to have to treat them with long-term inhaled antibiotics and possibly long-term macrolides, right? We know what macrolides do. They inhibit the 50S subunit on the ribosome, right? And as they're doing this, what they're basically doing is they're not allowing the bacteria to create the proteins it needs to survive. All of these products lead to airway destruction because they not only destroy bacteria, but they also can destroy your airway. In fact, when you look at macrolides, yes, they inhibit the 50S subunit on the ribosomal subunit. We know that, and we know that inhibits the bacteria's ability to make proteins. But there's other things about macrolides that are actually very interesting. When you look at the studies of macrolides, they're not only 
likely bacteriostatic, maybe even bactericidal, but they're also anti-inflammatory. When you look at certain cytokines and chemokines, they actually do inhibit some of the production of cytokines and chemokines. Remember, a cytokine is a molecule that travels a pretty long distance in the bloodstream that leads to recruitment of certain white blood cells into the area. A chemokine is going to allow the local environment to express certain receptors to make certain that the white blood cells and their products can get to the area where they are actually being recruited. And so when you look at macrolides, they actually reduce the level of interleukin-8 and other adhesion molecules. They also reduce the level of TNF-alpha, the elastases that lead to airway destruction. They reduce interleukin-6. They also reduce eosinophilic cationic protein in addition to matrix metalloprotease 9. And again, these products are involved in that airway destruction. So macrolides are actually very helpful, right? So they not only inhibit the bacteria's ability to make proteins, but they also inhibit some of these inflammatory products that can lead to airway destruction. In fact, when you look at the efficacy of macrolides in bronchiectasis, you can see that the pooled effect shows that macrolides reduce exacerbation frequency by 51%. Again, this isn't surprising. Not only does it suppress some of the bacteria growth, but it also reduces the inflammatory products, right? When you look at the time to first exacerbation, it increases that time by 54%, which is great. Quality of life significantly improves as well. So I think if there is a therapy that's important to understand and know in these patients with bronchiectasis, it is macrolide therapy. When you look at inhaled antibiotics, the theoretical advantages include delivering high concentration of a specific antibiotic to the airway, and you don't get those systemic side effects, right? So it's like a local therapy. But remember the treatment burden, right? Remember how many times a day they have to inhale this tobramycin or this colistin and also the local tolerability. And you also have inconsistent results in the randomized clinical trials like Orbit 3 and 4. When you look at inhaled corticosteroids, they're widely used, right? But there's little data to suggest that they're effective and the guidelines do not really recommend their use except when a patient has something like ABPA, right, which requires a diagnosis of asthma, or if the patient has asthma, that's when we know steroids are really effective, and that's because of the asthma, not necessarily because of the bronchiectasis, so you really want to think about that. So when you think in summary, macrolides are pretty much the most effective treatment that we have currently. Inhaled antibiotics may be effective, but the optimal responder, we don't really know. You want to treat the traits of these patients. Are they producing a lot of mucus, right? Are they coughing a lot? It really requires a personalized approach. But again, there's no FDA-approved therapies for the treatment of bronchiectasis. There's this unmet need. And when you think about bronchiectasis in general, what we're talking about here is cellular communication. Remember, as a result of these bacteria that are present, as a result of the neutrophils that are present releasing their products, you're getting this airway destruction, which contributes to the bronchiectasis. Now that we know some of these products that are being released, right, and what I'm talking about here is I'm talking about the neutrophil elastase, I'm talking about the cathipsins, I'm talking about neutrophil-derived DNA, I'm talking about the matrix metalloproteases, I'm talking about the myeloperoxidases. All of these products contribute to airway damage. How do they do that? Well, they break down some of the proteins that are involved. And not only are they breaking down the proteins that are involved in keeping the bacteria alive, but they're also breaking down some of the proteins that keep our airway epithelium environment appropriate, right? And so you get this change in this airway epithelium environment, and that's a problem. So we have to start thinking about inhibiting some of these communicating molecules that lead to airway destruction. 
So there's hope on the horizon. So now we're going to talk about targeting the underlying inflammation of bronchiectasis. I talked about this previously. The pathophysiology of bronchiectasis is a vicious, vicious cycle. You have the initial infection or the initial injury, whatever it is, whether the airway epithelial cell layer is damaged first, whether the infection takes place first, but you get this inflammation. You get the production of these cytokines, these chemokines, and you get the infiltration of neutrophils into the airway. Remember I mentioned the neutrophil products that cause damage to the airway. Again, the neutrophil elastase, the myeloperoxidases, the cathipsins. Once these are released, you start to get impaired mucociliary clearance. This environment is abnormal now. You get airway mucus hypersecretion. You get obstruction because of the mucus that's present. You can't breathe that air out any longer. You start to get the colonization of the bronchial. You start to get infections, hemophilus, pseudomonas. You get staphylococcus, streptococcus. You might even get non-tuberculosis mycobacteria. This all leads to the infiltration of more neutrophils, which release those enzymes, which lead to bronchial dilation and airway destruction. Now we're back at square one. So this process continues, and what we're finding out with a lot of airway diseases, a lot of lung diseases, is the production of these cytokines and chemokines that are leading to this imbalance, that are leading to this abnormal environment, that are leading to problems like bronchiectasis. And because of the look of the airway with bronchiectasis, remember, The bronchial becomes really, really thick. That wall becomes really, really thick. And that airway is now full of mucus. That airway is non-functioning. It does not function as it's supposed to, right? It can't carry air into the lung. It can't fix itself, right? You have this abnormal process of inflammation that is taking place and is persistent. It starts to create an environment that's very healthy for bacteria to grow. What I want to do right now is take a closer look at the pathophysiology of bronchiectasis with this very short video clip. During the normal process of normal respiration, air travels through the nose, down the trachea, and into smaller airways called bronchi. The bronchi are going to divide into smaller bronchioles, and then they further lead to tiny balloons, right? They're balloon-like clusters that we call alveoli. In the alveoli, oxygen is exchanged for carbon dioxide in the blood. Bronchiectasis results from the destruction and widening of the bronchi due to recurrent inflammation or infection, which incites an immune response that includes the release of neutrophils, lymphocytes, and macrophages within the bronchial lumen. This results in the airways becoming abnormally enlarged. They get damaged. This inflammatory damage then stimulates the formation of excess thick mucus in the enlarged airways. The thick mucus then crushes the cilia that line the airways and causes further damage. This affects the lung's ability to rid the airways of dust and pathogen and quantities of sputum that subsequently form cannot be efficiently cleared. This leads to a recurrent cycle of infection and inflammation, promoting progressive airway damage. Dipeptidyl peptidase, or DPP-1, is a lysosomal cysteine protease responsible for activation of neutrophil serine proteases, or NSPs, in the bone marrow during the neutrophil maturation cycle. NSPs are increased in the sputum of patients with bronchiectasis. Brenzocatib is an oral small molecule under investigation for the treatment of bronchiectasis that acts to inhibit DPP-1 and interrupt the neutrophilic inflammatory processes in the lung, thereby reducing the number of exacerbations caused by bronchiectasis. 
The reason why you want to have novel agents targeting inflammation is because we don't have an agent that targets inflammation in this disease. So there's an urgent need for effective therapies to break this vicious cycle of inflammation, lung damage, and infection for patients with bronchiectasis. So agents such as the DPP-1 inhibitors, brenzocatib, which target neutrophil serine proteases, may block inflammation and break this vicious cycle. I think we now understand with lung disease, it's all about inflammation, right? When we think about other lung diseases, we know that there's certain cytokines and chemokines and certain cells that are involved that lead to this inflammatory process. When you look at DPP-1 inhibition and you look at the phase two Willow trial, it increased the time to first exacerbation when you compared it to placebo. In other words, since it was inactivating some of this neutrophil activity, these patients weren't exacerbating as much. That's a good thing. The other thing you notice is that there were more patients with less exacerbations that were on therapy. You can see that very clearly in this graph. And I think it's very important for people to understand that people that were on placebo we're more likely to have more than zero exacerbations. I think it's important to understand that here is a molecule that may actually be doing something positive for these bronchiectasis patients. And I think it's important to understand the physiology of how it works. It's important to understand the mechanism of how it works and to think about how the neutrophil is releasing all of these enzymes but some of these enzymes need to be activated by dipeptidyl peptidase 1. And if we can inhibit that activation, you're actually improving exacerbations and you're increasing the time to that first exacerbation. When you look at the change in sputum neutrophil elastase concentrations with this DPP-1 inhibitor, you can see how that elastase concentration goes down as soon as you initiate brenzocatib. You can see that very well here. After 24 weeks is when the study was over, so you can see that that elastase concentration goes right back up after you stop using the therapy. But I think it's important to understand, again, what are we actually doing? We're inhibiting the neutrophil's ability to be as activated, which I think is important. We look at adverse events. Again, there's lots of different adverse events we were looking at. There are certain skin findings in patients who have a DPP-1 deficiency. So we did see some adverse events most of them were mild to moderate. Again, you can see there weren't very many that were life-threatening. So I think it's important to understand that. I think it's important to always look at adverse events and understand what we're doing. I think, again, the mechanism of action of the DPP-1 inhibition can lead to some skin findings. I think it's important to understand that. But I also think it's important to offer patients that have bronchiectasis, especially idiopathic bronchiectasis, some bronchiectasis specific treatments. When you look at brenzocatib overall, there's other areas of study as well. So again, we're looking at other potential uses for brenzocatib as well as a scientific community. And I think it's important to do that to understand if this medication can help us in a lot more pathologies. There are other agents under study like benralizumab. Again, that's an interleukin-5 receptor inhibitor and roflumilast, right? And roflumilast is a PDE4 drug as well. So again, we're looking at different drugs that hopefully will be able to help patients that have bronchiectasis. So I think when you look at the clinical implications of bronchiectasis in general, what you're finding is as a result of a damaged airway, which is either due to an infection or some environmental insult, 
It leads to the production of mucus and impaired ciliary clearance, infiltration of neutrophils. What we're identifying here is we're identifying that because of the presence of neutrophils, we know the white blood cell that's involved, perhaps inhibiting some of the cellular communication that takes place will allow the bacteria to be cleared, but not allow the airway to be as damaged, right? And so I think it's very important to look at these findings and understand that cellular communication drives a lot of illness in the lung and in fact drives a lot of illness in general. So I really find it helpful to be able to think about cellular communication in many different disease aspects, especially in bronchiectasis. I think it's great that we're able to push medicine forward, think about molecules such as renzocatib in this way and understand that inhibiting some functions of white blood cells is important So that way, our body cannot be damaged by the white blood cells that we house. I really appreciate you guys being here today. I'm glad you guys understand that bronchiectasis is characterized by this vicious cycle that I just explained. But we also understand that novel agents that target the underlying inflammation of bronchiectasis offer potential new means of treatment and hope for all of our patients. Thanks a lot. This activity is certified by PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HTX 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from INSMED.